Welcome to Transformers, the podcast about how business people and policymakers are creating a sustainable future. I'm your host, Kai Embren. Today, my guest is Per Larssons, an award winner in sustainability leadership and one of the top listed thought global leaders by Trust across America in 2013, 2014 and 2020. He also received a Green Award in London for his work as putting carbon on the menu as a head of sustainability at Max Hamburger, the Swedish hamburger chain. Today, Per works as a director of sustainability at Rangsells, a privately held corporate group in waste management, environmental services and recycling. So uh, welcome Per. Thank you, Kai. It's great to be here and great to be in London and Sweden at the same time. Distance with the digital communication will be always a little bit shorter. You have, over the years, given a lot of speeches, more than a thousand speeches from California in the West to Japan in the East. Which has been the key messages in your speeches? The key message is that we are in transformation phase and we have gone through three industrial revolutions. Now we are in the fourth one. And the fourth one will consist of changes where sustainability will be in the key of the change, meaning that companies that doesn't understand or have the knowledge about what's happening and how they're taking consideration the situations in society will face huge challenges. And the key message I have is that the leaders, the owners of the companies, the boards need to really to understand it. But what mm. is frightening is, is they can't do the change. The ones that are doing the change will be the line managers. So the take is really that make sure that you implement the change in the culture of the company where sustainability needs to be in the heart. How is the response when you talk about this type of issues? The response is challenging because we have been working with the liner system, production system, for more than 150 years. This is now a total new way of producing and consuming goods and uh, mm. using resources. And the thing is that where is the hen or where is the egg? The challenging part is that many of the companies that are seeing the problems coming, they understand that they will even exist in tomorrow's economy. Mm. And of course, if you understand it, if you don't exist, mm. then you have two choices. One choice is make sure that you change, or the other one is that you are trying to hide under the pillow and hope that everything goes over. So when you discuss with people on your travel and in conferences, has it changed over the years that you meet people that are more accept your message? I would say that the last 20 years that I've been working with this, there have been new changes. Now we are talking about this in the European Parliament. This is a fact that we are changing. We have uh, in 2015 the SDGs, the global goals were set. So there are examples that things are happening. Of course, this also creates a question, who can then do the change? So mm. people are more and more looking for best practice examples. And I think mm. that is a very good way forward. You have earlier year been very much connected to the food for thought issues throughout your work at the Max Hamburger chain in Sweden. Can you tell me a little bit more how you succeed to change the direction of the company's sustainability work and putting carbon on the menu? 
This is a very good example of an owner and of a board that understood that we are facing huge challenges in the future if we don't do anything. So this is really on behalf of the owner of Max Burgers. And that was a question that he raised in the middle of the 2005 or something like that. In a start with a collaboration with a natural step to make our head of Max Burgers to understand the consequences about unsustainability. And at the same time, make sure that we also develop solutions that can steer them in another direction. And it ended with the carbon labeling program because the outcome of the research and the studies was that the product that Max Burgers then sold, the beef burger, were the problem. But they decided to make sure that we're trying to influence, we're trying to make a difference. And then they included the customers in the sustainability journey. So carbon labeling the burgers... At the same time as they also did a lot of changes, and we did a lot of changes then to reduce the impact. But the long-term perspective was, of course, make sure that we change our customers' behavior. Make sure that we make our customers and our competitors' customers to prefer Max Burgers instead of the others. Hmm. And uh, now, it's more than now 15 years later, we see this change happening. We see that the forecast that we did then are really also now in the heart of many companies' businesses. To be honest, the food sector is still one of the ones that have blue challenges. 24% of the carbon emissions comes from land use or how we are taking care of our lands. And there's still a lot of things that we need to do here. Which was the biggest challenges for you? I would say the biggest challenge was, of course, to have an understanding that this can be connected directly to the business. Because if the consumer don't even understand what carbon dioxide is or carbon dioxide equivalence is, then it's very, very hard for them to choose low-value burgers. I clearly remember when we put the carbon on the menu in 2008 and the head of marketing, he became responsible for setting it on the market. He came back to me after three months. There has really not happened anything. And he took a personal meeting with me and said, sorry, Per, this is not possible. I can't really do this. We can't spend the money in marketing the carbon labeling because nobody understands it. So I would recommend the board and the owner that you will be responsible for marketing. You won't get any money because this is not done for marketing, traditional marketing. So then I, in 2008, I became responsible also for the marketing. And at that time, I was head of sustainability and human resources. But then suddenly I started to do work with marketing. And I understood the only way to succeed is to find the key persons that needed an example. And then they became our ambassadors. I remember when Sir Paul McCartney in the European Parliament spoke about Max Burger's carbon labeling as one of four examples. And of course, this made then an understanding on an international level. Aha, this uh, small company, they're doing something different. Maybe I should even try those burgers. But making sure that you spread the knowledge to the people that can bring the knowledge out, that was my key take. As I understand then, you need to have your owner with you. You need to have a position in the daily business work to make these changes. Yes, it's extremely important that the owner and the board understand and stand behind you in the direction. But the job to make it happen needs to happen within the organization, at the line, with the line managers, towards the customer, in deep discussion, in dialogue with the clients, with the customers. So it's a transformation. And you know, if you want to change your behavior, why should I change behavior? 
my life is so fantastic. Now you need to do it in a totally different way. Oh, why? So you need to make sure that people feel very positive doing the change. And this takes time. So if we look at the market today about hamburger, what's the difference if you go into Max Hamburger or you go into uh, McDonald's? The broad menu of vegetarian alternatives have really mm. hit the market. We see that the customers today, they prefer more and more to buy vegetarian or non-beef products. And we can even see it in the numbers that the beef industry, we are eating less beef, even mm. if it's a very, very little decrease. But over the mm. decades before, we have every year increased. But now we see a decrease. So if we look at the Max Hamburger's carbon footprint, how is it today? To be honest, I don't know really. I would say that the carbon footprint is still pretty much reduced with the equivalent to how much non-beef products that are being served. But you can see that Max Hamburger was a leader in the market to reduce their emissions. Definitely. And I hope they still are. And I hope mm. it, it will continues. Mm. I know that they are working a lot now with carbon offsetting on a huge scale and by that being climate positive. I'm not a big fan of offsetting. I'm more fan of changing. Mm. More fan of introducing alternative okay. methods. So you said the word climate positive. What does that mean? It means that you are emitting less emissions to the climate than you are contributing. Uh -huh. So it, uh, you're on the positive side. The more you use one company's resources, the less carbon emissions will be let out in the atmosphere. You've been talking more and more about the circular economy. How do you see the development of business models to come closer to the circular economy? Well, the circular transformation that we are undergoing, the first question, Mark, you should ask yourself, why do we need to do it? And mm. there's two reasons. One is that some resources we need to care for extra much. Second one is the carbon emissions challenge. Approximately 50% of all carbon emissions are embedded in the products that we are using. So making sure that we don't need to produce them again, we need to reuse them or need to reuse the material as long as possible. So it's both a resource perspective as well as it's a carbon perspective. So for me, circular economy, I see a big change coming that companies understand the tough to get the resources in the future. We can take Northvolt as an example, the battery to be mm -hmm. producer in Sweden. They are now setting up a recycling center for the batteries, mm -hmm. not because they want to be that fantastic good, because they understand that the resources that they have less of, they need to make sure that they can loop them back as many times as possible. So and companies are more and more making sure that they can secure the resources going forward, especially mm -hmm. big corporations can't make sure that they can source them in the same way as they've done before. So that's the biggest reason why circular economy will be very important going forward. I have heard that Sweden have done some calculation of how much money that you lose every year in the circular loop of materials. Is that something that you have been looking into? Yes, 4 billion euros approximately annually. But the thing is that it's just from four material loops. So it's not from all material loops, but it's the, from the biggest ones, the concrete, mm -hmm. the steel, the plastics, and cement, and aluminium. 
That must be a good driver for a change, isn't it? There is a business driver, definitely. But the thing is that today's systems are based on a liner structure. It means that you have the liner sourcing. All quality standards are based on liner production. Now you need to source in a different way. I met with uh, one of the former ministers of environment and did an interview with her two years ago. And during that interview, I asked her, okay, if we're now going into creating circularity, what laws do we need to change? And she was very, very clear. We need to change all the laws. So even if we would like to go circular, it's very, very hard to do it with existing policies in place. That's also why I believe that it's very positive that European Union has really understood it. And they are really targeting all policies now need to be revised based on a circular Googles or using circular eyeglasses. That's very, very good. It seems to be then that you need to have a government behind uh, this development. You can't drive as a business, change the market. You can definitely influence an industry. But the difference between liner flows and circular flows is that you need to work both up the streams and downstreams. Collaboration will be the key leadership element needed in succeeding in creating circularity. And that's also a big difference if you compare it to ways way of producing things. And then suddenly policymakers will be one part of that value chain, the enablers. Can you say that laws and regulation today hinder you to go circular? I can give you one concrete example. We can take potassium. We have now processes that are world-leading where we can separate out potassium and other salts out of incinerated waste. So out of the ashes, we can then extract the salts. The potassium that we then can extract out of that one are not able to be sold within European Union because in the legislations, they are based not on quality, they are based on origin. So meaning if you mine it, there's no problem to use it. But if it's used from waste streams, it's impossible, even if we have the highest quality in the world. So therefore, what we now are doing, because we're now setting up the first factory, is an investment for more than 50 million euros in Stockholm. And that will extract 50% of the Swedish ashes. What we need to do then is to sell the potassium outside of Europe. And that's just one example. So Europe mm. needs to change. Do the politicians understand that they have laws that hinder development in this market? Yes, I would say. They definitely know it. At the same time, they don't know exactly where to start. Like the Minister of Environment said, we need to change all the laws. But you can't change all the laws at the same time. So the question is, where should you start? And I think that you need to take the low-hanging fruits first. Where do you have the most of the impact? Of course, we hope that recycled nutrients will be one that they prioritize to make it happen. Because you need to change legislation in many parts. The politicians are very positive. They would like to create circularity. But they understand also that they need to change then a lot of laws to make it happen also. You read in the papers nowadays very much around the EU's new circular action plan. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, everything has now also been a little bit hindered by the COVID-19 and the stop. But they had a very ambitious plan that were about to be launched here in 2020. Now it has been postponed. I represent a recycling company. And if you're going to start there, we are normally dealing with waste. But Mm -hmm. we are now transforming into becoming a resource provider, and especially in the food sector. It means that we will become a raw material producer of nutrients, phosphorus, potassium, and nitrogen, loop-backed. 
Now the challenge is that if you're going to go to the European Union, they need to then push the legislations that are based on food production for us, like the fertilizer directive. The challenge is that they have just recently changed that one. So if you're going to do a new rechange, it will be done within the next five years. So in our case, if I'm going to be, because there are so many legislations in Europe, in our case, we need to make sure that we are visible in Brussels, make sure that policymakers understand that we can really make it happen, and then find the politicians that can be, like Paul McCartney before, can be our spokesperson and make sure that they are the ones that are doing the change. So I'm really looking for the heroes now. So if you can help me with the finding the heroes, I will crown them. I will make yeah. sure that they shine. But you're not the only one from the recycling industry that changed your business model. Do you see other front runners in this market that work more based on circular thinking and system thinking? I believe that our industry that we are now in, the recycling industry, we see that we will not exist in the next economy. So I think that we are maybe one of the first out that really are trying to make the change. I can't really say what's happening in other companies, but I hear the discussion. I hear the dialogue. We have then understood also that if there's no waste anymore, what will there be then? Based on that, we have developed solutions that are focusing on the global level, not just staying within our markets. And I believe that we will see the same thing happening in other companies, targeting special resources that they can do a difference with. You have been traveling earlier to Holland, and I have heard something about the ladder of Lansik. Can you give us a little bit of insight of your work in the Netherlands? We have no operation in the Netherlands yet. That's one of the markets that are very interesting for our new solutions. But for the last two years, we have been discussing and talking a lot with Dr. Ad Lansink. Who is Dr. Ad Lansink? Well, everybody that has the ladder of Lansink, so the waste hierarchy in front of them, then they know who he is. They know. <laughs> exactly. In 1979, he and a colleague presented the ladder of Lansink in the Dutch parliament. Later on, it became part of the law in Netherlands, as well as it became a part of the regulations from the European Union. It's a background. The lateral land sink or the waste hierarchy is saying that we should try to avoid waste. And that was perfect in 1979. It has dramatically changed the way how we are minimizing waste. When we now are transforming into a circular economy, and that is what we have been discussing with Dr. Lansing the last years, mm-hmm. is we need to have new policies in place and we need to adjust the waste hierarchy and turn it into focusing on resources. And Dr. Lansing has himself said that, yes, I believe that we need new principles that are based on time, place, function. So it Mm. means that when you are looking on producing a thing or using a thing, you should think of the resources, okay, time, making sure that I can use the resource when I need them. Place, that the resources are at that location that I will need them going forward, and then function, I can use it in the proper way. And uh, neither of those three principles are a part of today's waste hierarchy. They, in itself, are a prerequisite for creating circularity. So we need to change it, we need to adjust it, we need to have new principles in place. Well, can you see that the Netherlands are a frontrunner in Europe? I would say that the Netherlands, the Finland are the frontrunners. I hope that Sweden and other countries will join them. But more or less, the Netherlands, it's a very small country. 
they understood based on on the space we need to care for the resources in a new way at the same time as they are very very good traders so they have understood the importance of trading with resources and understand that they need to then create possibility to trade with resources that are also circular i believe in finland they were facing a huge economic downturn a couple of years ago and as a result of that they decided to really go circular as one action to reduce the effect of the economy or the downturn in the economy. So there are different ways of how they have become circular frontrunners. Denmark is another example, but again, we talk about the small country, we have limited space, they need to go circular out of the space perspective. That's not the thing in Sweden. We have a lot of space to continue dumping things, and we don't want that to continue to happen. If we looked into your sort of pipelines of front project today and which are the most important new development i talked about the potassium previous it means that we are using ashes fly ashes from waste generation as a source so we are switching a liner system to a completely circular system with at the same time detoxify which will be very important i would say that the second one that are really important for europe is making sure that we don't waste any more phosphorus And our innovation of extracting phosphorus out of incinerated sludge is world-leading. The quality that we can produce are the highest quality in the world. Again, with the same challenge as we with the potassium, we will need to export it out of Europe if we can't change the legislation. Today, we are very, very dependent on imported phosphorus from very disputed area in West Sahara, with high content of cadmium and uranium in the ore that are now spread in the fields of Europe. So we would like to change that, make sure that Europe care for the resources that are already under their feet, in the pipes under them. And this third one, of course, this is really extremely important also for Europe. We have developed a technique. We are probably the first in the world to be able to do that. And we are sourcing nitrogen out of water streams, out of wastewater. We can extract a lot of the nitrogen out of the wastewater and directly produce nitrogen fertilizer of it. And nobody has been able to succeed with that before. And in this case, we have many of the countries in Europe that are dependent on extracting nitrogen out of the water. And it's a huge cost for the society. Our solution means that you can reduce the cost. We can extract much more nitrogen and making sure that the nutrients are brought back to the fields again. The very, very latest innovation that we have presented here just two weeks ago is a carbon capture utilization project. And in Estonia, we have developed a solution or developing a solution how we can extract calcium carbonate, produce calcium carbonate out of a waste stream. And one of the ingredients and one of the basic ingredients that we are using there is carbon dioxide as a resource. We capture it and we use it in the production process. If everything goes very good, we will have a factory up and running by 2025 that we produce, I think, one million tons. It's a lot of chemistry in this, isn't it? It means that your competence in this field uh, has grown? That's correct. Many of our innovations are based on chemistry, and again, green chemistry or circular chemistry. So chemistry will be very, very important ingredients all over the world to create the next step. As has that been the this history of rank cells, that chemistry has been a big part of development, or is it in, something new? In 1881, we started as a transport company. That was a farm boy that were supposed to emigrate to the U.S., and he lended money to buy his first horse. 
to transport goods and people to get some funding for his travel. It was a very bad buy because the horse died after just a couple of months. So therefore, he landed more money in 1882 and bought the second horse. And that was a start for what used to become Sweden's largest transport company in the 1880s. That was horse and carriages. And at that time, we also started to work with latrines, emptying of latrines in the Stockholm and brought the latrines out to the suburbs around Stockholm where the food was produced. So transport and waste management, that has been an still bulk in the company. But nowadays, we understand the third generation of nutrient recovery will be based on chemistry. And now we are targeting the megacities around the world with our solutions where you have the huge population centers. Food are no longer produced in the middle of the city. It's produced far away from the city. So when you're bringing back the resources, you need to do it in a very effective way. And in this matter, we use the chemistry to extract the resources and transport them back to the fields again. But this type of innovations that you're bringing into the market, it must be connected to cost also. How big investment is it in this area? It depends. There's investment, of course, and we need to invest. But if you see the total income when you're setting up the processes, they are profitable in itself. And we are not talking about material streams that will never end. There will always be those material streams. We will always have the resources available. So therefore, it's very, very easy to get funding as long as you have a profitable business. And this Mm. is what we are having. Of course, we don't see that we will need to invest all the money ourselves globally, but we will have the ability to to sell licenses going forward. That will be the next step. I would say the next five years, we will target Europe or the next 10 years target Europe. But after 2030, it will definitely be offered to the global market. And we have already had a lot of discussion with Singapore as an example. From Singapore, they have some very long incinerated waste, but they have very little space to put the ashes on. And now when we can produce a circular way of doing it, they say it's fantastic, then we must have it. And then it's not just for the circular solution, it's a space solution for them, where to put it. So I think the future is very, very bright for our solutions. But it means also that you work in processes and in chemistry that takes more time to um, develop. Uh, So you have a lot of needs of investment in the beginning before you are on the market. How do you handle that? Well, it's a private-owned company. We need to make profit in order to invest in new innovations, and that's what we've done. We have been on the market in 150 years and generated profit. And this is from the owner's side. We are now the third generation in a family-owned company. The fourth generation has started to work within the company. But the third generation are still young, and they're still active. The chairman, Eric Salberg, and his two sisters are very, very interested in the way that the company are going and really would like to see the company grow. And so they, of course, investing the profits continuously in developing of the company. This will be the way forward, I believe. They would like to see the company stay for not just one generation, for more generations to come. Can you give any example of investment that you have done uh, the last year? Well, the last year is the biggest investment we've done ever is the investment decision in investing in the Astro Salt factory in Högbetorp. That was the 50 million euros investment. It's a place in Sweden, yeah. It's a place in Sweden, yes, where we will set up the first factory. Eventually, I will come also to UK 
to do presentations in September, depending on what's happening now with the corona situation, because we had some great interest also from UK about those solutions instead of mm. landfilling mm. and the resources we can then. It's a lot of challenges in the waste market here, so then minimize the waste and find systems how to reduce the waste into a circular economy. So you are very welcome on that. Before we end this talk, what do you want to see in the EU Green Deal, as I understand that you are a promoter of? What will you see as solution when the decision-making come with the final proposal of change? I would like to see a basic rule that quality will always come before origin. It means that quality will be the number one. That should be in all material streams. Of course, I would like also to see that the focus will be on nutrients, especially also targeting, especially the earth, earth elements and other critical raw materials. European Union has listed 27 of them. I think they will be even more going forward, maybe even 32 this year, because there's a revision coming. So thirdly, I would like to see they target especially also the critical raw materials. And if that is happening, that will be the starting point for all nations to make sure that, okay, if we have those resources in our country, how can we then source them? So the starting point, point in the direction what to do. And then we as a company will come up with a solution how to do it. But the what is the politician's task. They need to show with their political will what they would like to see happen. Then we as a company and other companies will try to make it happen. So uh, let's come back and talk more with you as a transformer and change maker when we know more about the legislation and what's going to happen in the European Union and the EU Green Deal. Thank you, Kai. It has been great to be on your show and uh, I'd love to come back and give more insights in the future. Thank you, Kai.